We have a little bit of uh, a special guest, I think, on, on this week's episode of the podcast. He didn't, he didn't play for a team in the OHL, but he wears number 14. And I think I have to say that up front, just so it doesn't sound completely random when we, uh, when we speak to our guest on this week's podcast. So just to pull back the curtain a little bit, what Pope and I do is record a week ahead. We're just staying one week ahead. So knowing what's already discussed with the guest that you're about to hear from, now we're recording the intro for that to stay a little bit more current. But because number 14 keeps coming up, and I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I think Mike Duco wore number 14 for the Rangers. I that I don't know if I can come up with another number, number 14. Uh, but anyway, so I put that out there. And and I may have been the one when who started When does 14 keep coming up? I don't know what you're talking about. Are you sure about that? Because I'm pretty sure you were the one that started it. And then maybe didn't drop his number, but certainly dropped his name again. Oh. And listen, I'm I'm going to accept responsibility. For this, okay, because I will, I will so what never does 14 forget. Have to, I don't know what you're getting at. You don't even you don't remember. Well, I know who I mentioned. Yes, <laughs> very very aware. Okay, and you you know that he wears number 14, or you yeah, forgot that part? I, okay, well, I, for, I I looked it up when during the conversation, but I forgot that he did wear 14. I remember tweeting you about it once, but okay. Um, so here we go. We're just okay. gonna <laughs> we'll just open this one right up because okay. I remember. I remember vividly this man's first game refereeing in the Ontario Hockey League, or at least the first time that we saw him on a game that we were broadcasting. And to say it was not his best night would probably be an understatement. Now, the truth of it all is that I don't remember the specifics. So that probably speaks to how we should think about officials in all sports every day, because we'll yeah. go in there and it matters. Like it, the whole world is on the line that night. Right. And then some years later, but I do remember the context being along the lines of Connor Hall with the Kitchener Rangers who, you know, had the crazy eyes and you didn't want to get Connor Hall's crazy eyes going. Cause he would mess you up. Yep. No two ways about it. Badly. And I guess in this particular, at this particular time, Hall was either, I think it was after one of his shoulder injuries. So it was either he was trying to be careful because of the injury or he was being told to be careful because the team needed him and he could get himself in trouble. Whatever the case was, he was being goaded and picked on all night long and everything was just like egregiously let go. And when Connor Hall finally decided enough is enough and he got involved in something. He was the only one that left the whole thing with a penalty, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, it was really across the board. I don't think anybody would recall it as a good night. And it just so happened to be <laughs> number 14, Chris Ferreira, who was refereeing that game. And I, I decided from then on, and I remember doing this to you before a game, Popey, we were making our notes in the media room and you had gone off to do your pregame stuff or whatever. And you came, <laughs> you came back in and I had written a number 14 on your page and circled it. And you're like, what is this me? I said, we're going to have a good night tonight or an interesting night tonight because number 14 is refereeing. Chris, I'm sure you do a great job. I couldn't do your job. I wouldn't want to do your job, but I thought we should have some context before he gets name and number dropped multiple times in this podcast. That's fair. 
I remember, well, there's <laughs> this, this is the issue. I remember more of his bad games than any, any game I've seen him do a good job at. And I'm sure he does do a good job certain nights. But maybe we're just not in attendance for those ones. Um, maybe that's him knocking at my door that has my dog riled up. Because <laughs> I'm, I, I, and you know what? Listen, we say it throughout the season all the time that nobody goes out there wanting to do a bad job. And um, it is a hard job, especially with as fast as the game is. Um, uh, yeah, there's just been a couple really bad. Remember the one in Niagara? That was a bad one, I think. Oh. I think it was him too. In, in all honesty, maybe he saves his worst nights for our broadcasts. But yeah, there have been a few. It takes a lot. And the only reason I bring him up is because it, it takes a lot for me to get on the refs. Because normally I don't care. I leave that up to you. That you, right. It's your thing. I'm just like, whatever. It's a ref. I'm not going to talk about him. But if I'm talking about him, you got to be having a really bad night. So that's why I, his name always is one that I just remember. It, it, there's not many names of referees around the OHL mm-hmm. that I remember. More so like linesmen, like Hasty. And, uh, you know, but referees, yeah, it takes a lot for me to remember the name. And that one I don't seem to forget. I also, I also like just real quick that Don Cameron's over your right shoulder in this little setup you got set up here at the radio station for our YouTube viewers. I switched things up this week. Usually I've got uh, an old Kitchener Rangers uh, Mm -hmm. Remembrance Day jersey and Ted Rogers, but I I moved to the other side of this boardroom here at the radio station. I thought, why not? And then there's this really cool cabinet of memorabilia behind me, but mostly it's, yeah, Don Cameron over one shoulder, a hockey jersey over the other shoulder. It kind of fits. I think that's an eight track player at the top shelf. And I think that's about the same first radio or eight track player that you did your first news broadcast on. Was that? Ooh, thank you for bringing that up. I was going to say, yeah, just, I, I donated most of the stuff in this cabinet <laughs> behind me. So there you go. And, and Don Cameron was never, he's, his name came up on, uh, on Twitter this week from somebody that had been listening to our recent podcast with Bob McKenzie. Oh, nice. And, and had asked something about Don Cameron or have you told stories about him? And I'm like, you know, Don, I think, is kind of with us on every one of these podcasts that we do because, you know, he was, he was a part of our broadcasting in this league from the, from the earliest of days. And, and, you know, Don was always pretty good, too, about the way he, he managed or tempered his comments around officiating because – if you haven't figured out yet, we're going to be speaking with a former ref and he's got a good sense of humor and you're going to get some good insight on this podcast about that relationship between official and team, official and coach, official and player, official and fan, etc. But Don always had a, a good way of looking at things, much like you said a moment ago, Chris, nobody's out there to do a bad job. And we as broadcasters, we as fans can certainly get on these guys. But if you think about the game of hockey specifically, not only the speed at which it's played, but the amount of times they tinker with the rules. I don't know how mm. these guys do what they do. Well, and we hear from our guest about like, you know, normally doing OHA games and then going up to the OHL when he first got into the league or going from OHL and then going over to cover world juniors. And then the, the rules change. So you're bouncing back between rule books on a flight over to Germany. Like I, it's a lot of stuff to pick up on and a lot to keep in your mind, especially when you're going from like OHA to OHL and you got to call the game differently. And you're normally, Oh, that's a penalty. Oh, not here. Not in this game. But last night it was, it can be challenging. I, I guess. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to be kinder now than you were delivering the, the darts. Well, I didn't feel bad a little once the interview ended, but then I was like, well, the facts are there. You know, can't <laughs> Don used to say that, you know, if, 
fourteen hundred eyes are seeing it at the or fourteen thousand eyes are seeing it at the odd. You better call it out. So I just call them as I see them. But I did get a I did get a um uh Twitter message from our guest this week after the podcast, and he said, uh, I saw the Tanev hit because we talk about that. And right. he said hundred percent boarding major. He said definition of a boarding major. So then I just went back and reiterated how much I hate the boarding call. It's being hit too hard in his response, which I didn't have a response for, was except you could kill someone by hitting them too hard into the boards. Fair. See, (laughs) and and this is what I like about the insight we get from this guest this week, because I think a lot of fans are going to gain a new appreciation. And it's also interesting because I was listening to 31 thoughts with Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick, and they were talking about officiating right around the Tim Peel thing, which we get into on this podcast as well. But according to Elliot, there's great concern. And I thought of you right away, Chris, that not enough boarding calls are being made in the league this year. And I'm like, not enough boarding, but Chris wants no boarding. So you might, you might be on an Island with this one. I might be, and yeah. our guest had a good point, so I didn't really. Have, I think my message back to him was just like, "Fair, they, they don't have anything to say there." You, you win the argument, I guess. Yeah. Um, do you want to get to the guest? I think so. I mean, is there anything else going on in your world right now no. that we need to know about for our podcast listeners? Because, oh yeah, by the way, we'll see you in September. I don't expect yeah. to be back at a rink. I mean, I'd love to be back at a rink. Unless I'm there helping to uh, put in the ice or take out the ice, I don't think I'm going to be back in a rink. I was so on board that we were having a season dead for it. This is happening a hundred percent, as I've said on this podcast numerous times. And now as soon as this whole lockdown hit from our lovely premiere, um, I'm like, yeah, there's not going to be a season. Zero chance. Yeah. How do you Zero start chance. hockey when you're trying to stop so many other things? I don't think you do. But who needs a Friday night at the odd when you can just spend a Friday afternoon for two hours next week, listening to a Farwell and Pope OHL stories podcast. Oh, that's right. Because as I already said, we record a week in advance. So we just finished recording next week's guest and he is one of the giants of the game. Six Memorial cup appearances. I mean, we'll just, he's got a lot of stories to share and yeah, it goes deep. That's next week. Right now, Popey, you always do such a good job of this, so I'll just send it over to you. I'm just going to keep it real simple with this one. Former linesman, former referee in the Ontario Hockey League. Farwell and I talk a lot about linesmen and referees, so now we got one on the podcast that we could peel back the stripes of Scott Hutchinson. Oh, and by the way, open invitation for Chris Ferreira. You can come on our podcast and rip us anytime you want. Day. <laughs> Well, this is what I just call a case of good timing as Hutch and I have been going back and forth on this for a little bit. I'm like, yeah, we have to have a former ref on here. And like almost simultaneously, Tim Peel and the National Hockey League happened. So let's just let's just start right there, Hutch, and and your feelings on game management versus like we always talk about. Popey and I will be up in the booth saying if it's a penalty in the first minute, it's a penalty in the last minute. And that's the usual phrasing but uh what are you trying to do when you're out there on the ice and how do you feel for tim peel right now appreciate you guys let me wade into this process (laughs) let's just jump right at it um it's it's difficult to explain because every referee that ever puts it on understands or tries to understand what they want the game to look like and i know that 
you know, later in my career, I was able to establish my level of tolerance and what I was willing to accept as a penalty in the context of the game. And they will teach you from a very early age, you know, goalies, you got to get those penalties because if you don't, it turns into a, a mess. You want to get dangerous plays, the check from behind, a cross check to the face, things like that. Um, those are penalties that you need to get. And obviously the scoring opportunities are penalties that you want to get. So if you have a baseline of those three factors in your game and you stick to those, generally you're not going to get too far out of shape. The one, the one that I always looked at is, you know, you see that maybe that innocuous slash or that slash behind the legs. I always thought to myself, if that looked like it would hurt, I'm calling it. You know, it's a little dirty, it's a little cheap, it's a little bit this, but I always looked at it, the slash to the wrist, you know, it may not look big, but there's no padding there. If I always thought if that looked like it hurt, I was calling that. And then outside of all of that, you have to look at, and, and anybody that says it doesn't happen will deny it. Uh, the score is a factor. The, uh, you know, the time of game is a factor. But not outside those three that I mentioned, the scoring opportunities, the goalies, and the, the dangerous plays. Because you could qualify a penalty to look at and say, well, you know what? Maybe that's a one-minute penalty, but we don't have one-minute penalties. So maybe that's not a penalty you're going to call. And the other thing that is really, really important, uh, Mike, to your point, is precedent. If you're going to call it in the third period, then by all means, call it in the first and call it all night. But you have to recognize, and it takes it takes time and experience. And, you know, a lot of the guys that make it to the higher levels, they have that. They already know if this is going to be a penalty in the third period because they've done it hundreds and hundreds of times. And I think that's where the game management can be wrapped up into one. It might be a penalty in the third period, but if it's not going to be, it had better not be a penalty in the second or the first. And then, you know, the other factors come into play. But outside those three, they're penalties. I'm not the biggest fan of what Mike said, where if it's a penalty in the first, it's a penalty in the third, because I, I don't think that can be construed as fair. If it's 0-0 in the first, and it's 2-2 with a minute left, and you call the slash in the first, you're not going to call that penalty in the third, though, are you? Well, did it hurt? Well, who can, well, does it, like, well, well, this is, I mean, that's a great question, Chris, but here's the thing. If you already know what you want your game to look like in the third period, maybe it's not. But if it falls into one of those categories, hey, to me, I, I'm soft. If that looks like it's going to hurt, that's a penalty. But you can't get to the third period and all of a sudden go, oh, I better call this now. You know, referees that, that understand it and referees that really, truly get it, they will know whether or not they should call that penalty in the first. And they will know whether or not they're going to need that penalty in the third, which is different from wanting a penalty. But you will hear guys quite often say, I needed that one. Because if you don't call it, you know, the wheels fall off it in a hurry and then you not, you got nothing. You got nothing left. Okay. So you're right. There was no easing you into this, given the nature <laughs> of what's just been going on in the game. But I also wanted to ask, and I ask this of goalies a lot, Hutch, because I think goalies are a little bit goofy and I'm going to suspect from your time in the game, you might agree a little bit, but I've often wondered. Uh, yeah, that's right, Chris. That's exactly right. Uh, why, why officiate? Why would you even want to put yourself in that situation? I started at 14 and I didn't know any better. <laughs> it's like, honestly, I, I remember I was, you know, I was playing minor hockey and the local referee in chief came in and he said, Hey, do you want a referee? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. And I said, no. And he said, you'll get paid. I said, okay. 
And that's, <laughs> that's really all it took. And I mean, it was, you know, I, I was never a big, a big guy. I mean, you could debate that fact now, but um, when I was younger, I just thought, you know, what, I'll make some extra spending money, be able to, you know, buy nice clothes. High school gets expensive and it just kind of went from there. I refereed when I was playing and I played and I played and finally retired from junior at, at 18 or 19. And then the next year I was refing in the or lining in the OHA and I never looked back. It was just something that, you know, it was it, for me, it was something that you could get on the ice and, and I never had to worry about a coach you know, taking ice time away or me, you know, having a smart mouth and taking my own ice time away. It didn't really matter at the time, but uh, that was the reason. And, and as I went further and further, Mike, it got more and more enjoyable and, you know, the, the different levels and the different levels of hockey and the different levels of exposure. I mean, I'd, I didn't make it to the NHL. I mean, it was a goal to do that, but there is not one day that I would regret or complain about the career that I had. You mentioned that you're a softie. There's certain guys in the league and just in refereeing in general that aren't and just basically put the whistle away for the most part, call a couple during the second period and call it a win. How important do you think it is to have both types of referees or is it, is it a hindrance to the game almost? Um, well, I think if you, I mean, when I referenced being soft, I didn't want to get slashed. That was, that was <laughs> being soft, but um, you know, there, there has to be a, a level of, and I, I do say this to everybody I meet, but there has to be a level of, I don't care. I don't care. I mean, I recall I was in I was in Erie, Pennsylvania one night, and and I think it was the year that um, Spezza had been drafted, and he's playing in in Mississauga. If I'm right, I mean, he played the year before, and then he goes to Mississauga, and and I called a, a penalty on Spets, and somebody from the bench, like, oh my god, you called a penalty on Jason Spezza? Do you know who he is? And I turn around and I said, I don't care. Like that is a penalty, and it's a penalty on Spets, and it's a penalty on every other player on this team, and. And I think, Chris, if you take that attitude into it, you're not really going to care. I mean, I was at the World Championships in 02, and I gave a penalty to Yarmir Yager. I couldn't care. He 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 committed an infraction. And then then afterwards, hey, I gave a penalty to Yarmir Yager, you know. But you have to have that attitude going in. Otherwise, you're just going to get buried because you're going to, you know, give a gift over here, give a gift over there, try to keep the ledger straight. I never... I never subscribe to that, but you have to almost not care about what happens, care to do a good job, but not really take much stock or pride in the fact that, oh, you gave a penalty to the star player. Oh, well, he earned it. Carry on. Okay. You may not care, and you can work on keeping that attitude starting the game and throughout the game, but we all know that the players care, the coaches care, the fans care, and you're never right in probably all of those eyes. So how difficult is it to continue not caring when they are very much letting you know how much they care? Well, they care who wins. We never do. And I, ha- I never have. It doesn't matter to me what the outcome is at the end of the night. Um, but one of the things I would always say, you know, how can you call that at this time of the game? Well, did you coach him well enough not to do that at this time of the game? Why are you laying this on me? I mean, I see a team or a player every 10 days, every 15 days, whatever it is in the OHL. Those guys are around their coach every day. The same in the pros, the same where. Well, if you didn't care about cross-checking him to the back of the head with three minutes to go, why are you asking me to care? That's a penalty. Makes sense, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that I'm not in your skates. I'll say that. Well, you, you mentioned some of those interactions with, with coaches. Do you remember any that uh, were extremely heated or some of the worst ones? Every one of them's heated. 
I mean, yeah. every single one of them is heated because, again, they, they want to win. They care to win. And, I mean, specifically for the OHL, one of the things that that gets kind of lost in all of this is it is big business. Like, these coaches, their mortgage payments are reliant on wins and losses of teenage hockey players. And, you know, if we, if we do a good job and we do a fair job, they get a win, they get a loss, and it, and it doesn't impact them. But, if, you know, if a coach has a stretch of 10 or 12 games in a row where he's not doing very well, he he could be out of work. And that's that's always something I kept in the back of the mind. So anytime I went to a bench, and I wasn't afraid to go to the bench because I knew I was getting the last word, but I always wanted to try to figure out what it was that they were going to be upset about. And if you didn't know that, then you probably shouldn't be on the ice anyway. Um, yeah, I remember um, – I remember Kitchener many times having uh, having some pretty good conversations with that bench. And I mean, at the end of the day, it was all just in the heat of the battle. And then never does it get personal or you know, disrespectful. It's just, you know, they, they, they want to know what you're doing and why you're not doing it. And uh, I remember it was in, uh, I, I don't remember the years, guys, because I haven't been in the league for almost 15 of them, I think. But I do remember being late going into London one night and Owen Sound was there and we were late on the highway. In fact, they were in the warm up when we got to the rink. It was probably seven o'clock, maybe seven oh five, which is an hour late in my mind. I wanted to be there ninety minutes before and went out on the ice and it was I was awful. I was I mean it was the year of the new standards, so it was that oh six, oh seven, whatever it was. I was I was awful. You know, it was just like I couldn't even find my whistle half the time and they just went after it and, and Anyway, I knew I wasn't very good. And it was funny when you come off and, you know, Owen Sounds bust there and the coaches, hey, that was a great job. That was a great job, man. And then you're just waiting for the phone to ring from the office to remind you that they've changed the rules for the season. So, so that was that. So then the next week, probably the following Saturday night, I'm in Owen Sound. Well, London's there again. And, uh, so I, I called the standard that night and, and Mr. Hunter's on the bench and he is not happy. Like he's just not happy because he see me you know, seven days apart and I'm a completely different guy. Just, he was giving it to me good. And I, I finally had had enough, but I, I didn't address it until the end of the period. I went over and I said, Dale, what's going on last week, this, this week, this. And I said, okay, you're right. Last week I was garbage, but this is the standard you guys want. This is the standard you've asked us to implement. And this is the standard we're going to get. So that was it. That was it for the night. And I, I think, in fact, I called a penalty on his team in a penalty shot on his team in overtime and ended up losing the game. And he, he didn't say a word. And so I guess to reference it back, you have to go over and find out because it's either something you're doing or something you're not doing because coaches don't just get mad for no reason. So that was, uh, that was one that I, I remember in particular, but uh, probably created by me the week before. You talk about, that new standard that had come into the league. And if it's one thing that I personally find frustrating and Chris and I talk about this a lot, it's that the rules in hockey seem to constantly be in a state of flux, good or bad. We could debate that. This isn't the point for, or the time for that debate, but as an official Scott, how much, can you take us through the process? You know, here's, here's the new standard for the season, but then game in, game out, how you're being reviewed, basically the report card you get on the performance you just gave. What does that look like as an official? It was, it was tough because, you know, the whole time you're doing it, you're pretty much left alone and you just kind of, 
you know, build on what the generation before you did and they built on the generation before that and before that. And so, I mean, I, I've watched not often, I don't spend a lot of time at it anymore, but if you watch those, you know, replays, the, the 1980 Oilers games against Calgary, it's like penalty. Well, there's another one, another one. Like there could have been 50 penalties a shift. I mean, it's amazing where the game has come. And I think, I think a lot of it, Mike, um, a lot of it happened when, um, when they took the red line out. And they made the game faster. And, um, you know, as a one man on the ice back and forth, you probably weren't going to be able to keep up with that because to have a 70, you know, 160 foot stretch pass was, you just weren't catching it. So to put that other guy on the ice, and I remember being in Barry one night and uh, I don't remember the player. I want to say it was Joey Tenuti, if I'm, if I'm right. Well, he's coming down the ice and he's mocked three. He was a fast player. Well, he had his head down a little bit. And the defenseman just stepped into him and it wasn't dirty. It wasn't late. It wasn't early. It wasn't anything, but, but because Joey Tenuti had such a head of steam because there was nobody touching him, nobody was tugging on him. He was able to get up to speed, laid him out pretty good. So I think when they took away, you know, kind of the, the hook, the hold, the, you know, the, the, the D man running interference for his partner, all of that stuff sped the game up and it got really, really challenging, but after a while, you figure it out and you figure out what you're going to you know, accept and what your supervisors will accept. And, you know, the league will remind you. <laughs> they were very good at reminding you what what they were. And the coaches would remind you by way of the league office. So there's a lot of people out there that will give you, give you some really good coaching advice as to whether or not you're doing a quality job or not. The OHL has those uh, officiating managers that come to games we see Leon Stickle all the time in Kitchener. When he comes into a room, whether you've had a good game or a bad game, what are some of those conversations like? In the OHL, they were, um, you know, really more more coaching, more, you know, fine-tuning. Um, you know, they would say, why did you, you know, I thought this was a penalty. Well, from, you know, row 78, section 5 in the odd, okay, it is a penalty, but in – in two dimensions, it may not be. And based on where you're standing and where everybody else is standing, it may not be a penalty. So they would come down and not necessarily say, hey, you missed it. But if you were standing in this position or you anticipated that play and got around that guy, you might have seen that play. So for the most part, it was um, it was really uh, more coaching, Chris, just you know, to make sure that guys were maintaining their levels of concentration and making sure that they understood what their roles and, and responsibilities were. So not very often did you get in a situation with a guy in the locker room where it would be confrontational. I mean, he's there to help you. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the things that we did as officials, we leaned on those guys because they were the generation before and the generation before, and they too were having to adapt. And a guy like Leon Stickle, I think he invented the puck, um, <laughs> but he's, but he's got a wealth of information Um but the game today is not the same game that Leon Stickle was involved in. So when a person like that is able to adapt and willing to help you help coach you along, it's, it's invaluable. You know, Ronnie Asselstein and, and um, Ray Scampanella was doing it. And, and, you know, guys like that, how could you not listen to what they're giving you to try to help you make you better? And, and so I enjoyed that. It's funny. You mentioned Leon's name, obviously Scampy. And it seems Hutch, every time you go back and, and watch a YouTube clip of one of the, the great battles from years past in hockey. It's either Stickle or Scapanello trying to, trying to be in the mix, breaking it up, obviously in the role as a linesman. Is that the best part of going from being a liney to a ref? You're not first on scene to break up those things anymore? 
yeah, you get paid more too. Don't forget that part. Oh, great. That. Um, yeah. Um, to not skate yeah, as much. Figure that out. <laughs> that's not true either, though. <laughs> they do all the heavy lifting. I mean, not a referee that, you know, that has had any success in his life will tell you that, you know, the linesmen and the guys that, you know, chase pucks and interact with the players have, um, you know, have our respect 100%. Um, I, I enjoyed being in charge. Like, you know, there's a lot of guys that have worked lines forever and, and tried to referee, but just couldn't do it, whether it was their personality or whether they didn't understand the role or they, they just like, you know, shagging pucks and doing face-offs and getting into the mix. And, you know, it's not, it's not for everybody. I think goalies are a little bit loopy at times, but I think referees, if you actually did an MRI or a CAD scan, you wouldn't find much there either. So, um, yeah, I, I, I did line. I was, I lined when I first got into the OHL and then I wasn't mature enough to handle those responsibilities because I just really come back from playing, which is a different attitude together. And I, I was let go and, you know, my problems, my fault, but, you know, started refereeing and then I was able to thankfully get a second opportunity to get back to the OHL and, you know, 98 or 97 or something like that. I mean, it's a long way back when I start adding those numbers up. It's a lifetime ago, but yeah, refereeing was for me just wanting to be in charge. You mentioned being let go. Do you want to get into that or no? I mean, I don't, I don't think it's really anything. I mean, when you, you look at the guys that have success that go from major junior to the NHL, I, I mean, I reference guys like TJ Luxmore and Kendrick Nicholson. And I mean, they, they did it very, very well. And they did it very, very quickly at early ages as well. And and I think for those guys, it was just a, a level of on ice maturity that they had. And I worked with those guys. I didn't have that when I came out of the, you know, playing ranks and no one really took me aside and said, don't be such an idiot. And, and so until you, until you kind of get, I remember it, it was like, you know, we'd get a, a schedule at the start of the season and then it would say, okay, here's your next four weeks. And, and then, so the first schedule came out and I had like five games or four games as a linesman, right. Which was really cool. Cause I was in the OHL and, and then uh, I didn't get a second schedule. So that was their way of telling me that, yeah, you didn't quite cut it. So you're phoning around, Hey, did you get your schedule? And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, we got our schedule two weeks ago. And it's like, Oh, two and two together. And, so anyway, I was, you know, looking back on it, I just was not responsible and mature enough to handle the level of responsibility at the major junior level. What's it like when you are at that level and that schedule does come out? Like Chris and I, as broadcasters, kind of wait for June, look at the schedule, map out, okay, here's the Eastern swing. Here's when we're doing the Northern swings, plural, and, and so on and so forth. And all we really have to do as we plan our lives around that and miss weekends with friends and family during the season is hop on a bus, right? The bus pretty much takes care of things. But for you, you're you're driving hither and yon, going to all of these games on your own. Take Mm -hmm. us through that process and and what it's like schedule comes out and how you start to plan your life out. Well, there, there is no life. I mean, you know, we interrupt this marriage for hockey season is is pretty true. Uh, I don't think I was married when I get in, but shortly thereafter, but that doesn't matter at this point. But the other thing to remember is that when you're doing the OHL, there's a very good chance that you're doing the OHA as well, right? So the, the tier two loop or the junior B loop over the Kitchener way, because when you get into the OHL, your season is probably not going to be very long because you've got the veteran guys that are going to end up doing the playoffs and going deep in and making a run to the cup. So, you know, there were nights or there were weeks where quite literally I was at the rink four to six nights a week, you know, the OHL always took the priority. So if you had, 
games to fill in, you know, the, the office, the OHA and the OHL work together. Okay. So where, where have you got Hutchinson going this week or the next two weeks? And then they'd fill in some spots. So, so yeah, it was, it's, you know, the hockey season as a referee, it's, it's taxing. I don't think people really truly understand the level of commitment that it takes um, to have some success or even just to be part of the league, whether you have success being a relative term or not. Um, you know, we, I drove, I drove to every rink with the exception of Sault Ste. Marie and, and Ottawa. And in fact, my first game in the OHL regular season was Plymouth at Sault Ste. Marie. So to leave the house at, you know, nine o'clock Friday and I owned a business at the time and, um, or did I, I don't recall, maybe I was working somewhere, but anyway, you leave the office early and you get to the airport, you fly to Sault Ste. Marie, you get on the, you know, the bird and you do that game and then you stay overnight you fly out the next morning come home and meet your family and then depending on whether or not you're doing another ohl game or an oha game you know grab new gear and back to the rink so that yeah, we would drive everywhere i mean there's some monumental trips i mean you guys have done the loop i mean sarnia to, to where i live just south of barry took me seven hours one night kingston home took me seven hours one night got stranded in erie one night and that that phone call is never really grand, right? You're there, you know, your family's expecting you home at a certain time. You don't quite make it. And it's uh it's a tough go. My, my, the last weekend in the league, Mike, Friday night, I was in Sudbury, came home, new gear, picked up the lines in the Kitchener, drove to Saginaw for Saturday night, and then stayed in Saginaw Saturday night, drove to Sarnia, did the six o'clock game in Sarnia, drove home. So 1600K, three games in two and a half days. Yeah, fun little weekend, eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. all glory. And, then, so and you go into Sarnia and you get yelled at, which is great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, you've got another, if you've got another guy with you, they just you hope that they're going to yell at him. Yeah. You know, but. How but often. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Hutch. How often, you, you mentioned that other guy with you. How often would you get your schedule and see some names that are doing the game with you and go, oh, not Chris Ferreira again, for example? Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just, well, we've I, talked about it. I would past, wonder if anyway. guys are looking at it and saying, we're going to referee with that idiot again. Um, you know, speaking of me, but I had a, one of the guys that was in the league, Sean McQuig, he lived in the same town I did. So we got paired up a fair amount, just kind of save on expenses and, you know, get to the rink. But, uh, you know, for the most part, being where I was, it was rare that I had to drive with somebody. I would just meet them at the rink, depending on how it went. But, everybody's on the same page they just want to go to the rink and do a good game and you know you're not going to get along with everybody and i'm sure there were you know people that rather not see my face or hear my name again and that's okay because not everybody gets along in life but when you got to the rink everybody was on the same page don't mess it up you know don't make on a highlight reel and don't don't get your name sent to the office and if we can get through that and, and and make sure that you know the game is fair and equitable for all parties and hopefully it's entertaining then and i think everybody's fine with that chris i'm sorry i had to pick someone yeah <laughs> yeah you'll send him the, the apology card or the he's you're off his christmas card list for yeah sure. i'm sure he listens so uh, how how talkative were you on the ice hutch all the all the time all the time um it was a way for me to you know bring some levity to the game it was a you know the stuff that's said on the ice anymore, I don't know about it because I was never there, but some of the stuff that, that you hear or that was said to you that, you know, would just be like, ah, is this really worth it? Um, 
but it was a way for me to communicate with the players. It was a way for me to let them know where I was, what my intentions were, and where Max move would be. And, and again, you know, going back to the start of the interview here, a lot of people don't recognize or want to recognize that a lot of these players are 16 to 19 years of age, moving away from home for the very first time. They might be learning how to shave um, by themselves. They might be learning how to tie their tie by themselves. They just, they're not, they're not going to yell at their coach. They're not going to yell at a teammate. So the closest, next closest person is the guy in the stripes. And you know what? I never, ever took it personally. I never threw a player out for yapping at me ever. Um, I just didn't see the need to, you know, to make his life or his day worse by throwing him out. Um, but I was, I was always yapping with somebody or at somebody or, you know, putting a shot in. I remember an Owen sound one night, Sean Avery was up there and he, he was wearing those white Nike skates and uh, he, he tripped over from the blue line and I, I suggested to they should go to the trainer and get the picks ground down off of those. And I don't think he really appreciated it. And he let me know it, but, carry on you know it was just stuff like that which I always found comical and humorous um and that's another Spezza story I think he was I awarded him a penalty shot or my partner awarded him a penalty I don't even remember but anyway he'd come to me he says you've seen this goalie before what should I do I told him to dump it and change and um he, he let me know about that one too so you know it's just a way to be human on the ice so these players if you really need them they'll listen to you. And that was, I, I was found that a guy like Cam Jansen. I don't know, you know, Cam was one of my favorites. I knew he was a pugilist and I knew he had a job to do and he did it often and he did it well. But if there was ever anything that I needed, I could go to Cam and say, I need you to settle your bench down because I don't want to really have to get involved as much as I'm going to. And he would take care of it. And, and, and if I needed him to stop punching somebody in the back of the head in a scrum, I could just call up, call out his name and, because of the level of respect that I showed him and he showed it back. So, you know, being verbal has its place. Sometimes you, you want to get caught saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, which has happened once or twice, maybe. Um, I'm talkative guy. Maybe can't even tell by now by the answer I just gave you. But, uh, yeah, it was a big part of my game. You never tossed a player. Did you toss anyone else? Never. Well, I shouldn't say never tossed a player. I mean, I remember tossing a player in uh, – Sudbury one night I think he's a former player of the Kitchen Rangers and he said some things that weren't really flattering in front of their bench and I wasn't going to have that so he got the gate early um I was <laughs> never thrown a coach I know that I was in Collingwood one night doing a junior a game tier two game and um Newmark was in town and puck goes across the line I was in a bad spot but I did see it go across the line and the rest of the play was to my back and the announcer came over the PA system and told me there were too many men on the ice. So I had to punch his ticket and he left a little earlier than I'm sure he wanted to, but that was the only time really that I, you know, thrown a, a game official out. I didn't see the value in throwing a coach because if it was really going bad and it got him angry enough, I was probably going to need him around to control his bench if I needed it. You told the story earlier about the conversation with Dale Hunter when your style changed from week to week with the new standards being in place and how that ended, you know, professional understanding there's jobs to be done on either side there. You you shared a story, though, not too long back about an exchange with uh, former Rangers and Whalers coach Pete DeBoer when he, he made some comment uh, and and you said that the, the TV adds 10 pounds. He told you to stop eating TVs. That's right. Uh, 
how many who who was the who was the most talkative coach or maybe if that's not the funniest who was funnier than DeBoer? uh pete i mean pete had a lot to say a lot of nights um but i mean i respect them all um yeah i was remember mike had or pardon me um pete had kind of commented on my weight and he was right and uh i just you know smart ass remark right oh pete it's a tv game we'll stop eating tvs so i just carry on because you just got burnt um mike stallers um Mike Stallers was an Owen Sound, and we were doing a, you know, an October game around the Thanksgiving. And he he said to me, "Don't you feel a little unsafe at this time of year?" And uh, and said something, you know, "Why is that, Mike?" He says, "You know, because you're a turkey." And I said, "Well, you got to get some more material." And he said, "Speaking of material, how much did it take to make that jersey?" Well, way I go. I mean, that's that's my own fault for not being the fittest guy on the planet because, you know, you work all day and then you eat all afternoon and then you're referee and there's really no gym time, but it was my own fault or my, my downfall at the end. But, you know, as I said, they're all there trying to make it, make a life for themselves and do a good job. And, you know, if you're going to be the brunt of it, you better take it. Cause I can tell you, there will be a time where you're going to hear it for me and, and hopefully they don't get upset about it, but I never took it personally. I do remember, I remember, you know, going back to Pete, I remember he, there was um, um, Plymouth at Kitchener, I think maybe his first year in Kitchener. And it was game seven. Mike, you might know better than I, but they were getting pounded. Like they got – Plymouth came in and ate their lunch, their dessert, all their – it just beat them bad. And, and I was standing in front of the bench, and Pete was not very flattering at the time. And I didn't say anything back. I just took it because I knew they were just downtrodden and they, they'd lost and everything else. And you know, Pete called me two weeks later and apologized. He got my he got my number from the league office and he called me. And, you know, since that day, Pete DeBoer's got my utmost respect. Where was your favorite place to ref? I really enjoyed Kitchener. Just the whole environment in Kitchener. It was tough for me to see the puck. I mean, depending on who you ask, it'd probably be they'd say it was tough for me to see penalties too. Uh, I just found that when the puck kind of got up into the stands, you'd lose it uh, a little bit, but that was, a, that was a fun rink. The old St. Mike's um, building was fun because it was like, you know, skating on a bathtub. Um, that was always full of action. Um, Ottawa in the regular season was really always a good time because that place was 10,000. All of the rings, I mean, just, just to be in the league for as long as I was, it was an honor to be there. So I wouldn't say that any rink I disliked. Some of the drives I wasn't fussy on, like driving to Plymouth. They always treated us well there. Nearly got hit by a Zamboni in Plymouth one night. Um, but the drive back is the big one, right? If you're down and back for that, that Saturday night game, it's a long day. It's a really long day. So What happened with the Zamboni? Well, between periods, they'd have somebody run down and give you a five-minute warning, and then they'd come out and give you a three-minute warning, so you're out on the ice and ready to go. So they came down and gave us a three-minute warning. Well, I didn't know that they had that, you know, that Timbit game or that Mites game between periods, between the first and second, so they were running a little bit long. So I'd come out and, okay, boys, let's get going. So I'd take my run down the runway there, get right, get to the door. Well, the Zamboni's not done yet. They didn't tell us that the Zamboni was still on the ice. So I was probably about four feet and 40 pounds away from getting run over by a Zamboni, but we made it. See, it's a good thing you laid off those TVs, Hachi. That's right. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) 
or was ate there, them because it slowed me down on the entry. <laughs> was there a time, because you've talked about sort of your style. You, you weren't shy about talking, obviously. What was your approach when you were over at a bench having a conversation with a coach who's obviously pissed about whatever, but what are you trying to accomplish in that moment, in that situation? Just hear them, just listen, you know, cause I think, I mean, you, I'm 90% of the time, the referee is the guy that has created the conflict. The minute he throws his arm up or doesn't throw his arm up, he has created the conflict. And, you know, you guys have heard it. You've said it. You're going to be wrong every single time you do it because 50% is going to be okay with it. 50% not so okay with it. So I always went over and I tried just to listen because you're not going to win the argument. The best you can hope for is to come out of there knowing that you've been hurt or that they've been heard and you just, you know, tuck it away for the next time because there's never going to be anything solved at a bench. I never found that. I mean, I was 1500 and 0 in arguments. I never lost one, but you weren't going to solve any problems because they're going to be hot for, four or five, seven more minutes, maybe the entire night. But if they know they were heard, the worst thing now, and I find now that guys will not go to the bench. And I've talked to coaches. I coached for a little while. And my, that infuriates coaches. Like They may want to give you a bit of an earful. You can determine how long of an earful you're going to get. But if you don't go over to that bench and give them that, that you know, close, close to close conversation, He's just going to yell it across the ice. So you best go over and mitigate the damage by letting him tell you what he thinks and you don't have to agree with it and then beat it and move on. But, you know, that's really what they're asking for. Maybe they want a brief explanation, but I never went to a bench without knowing what I was going to say. Uh, Cause you're just, you setting yourself up for failure. Take us inside the referee's room, whether it be before a game or maybe in an intermission Besides a you know power bar and a Gatorade, maybe some double bubble. What what kind of things are being said amongst the referee team? That would depend on who you're with. I mean, you've got some guys that they just wouldn't shut up. Um, you've got some guys that wouldn't say anything. I I refereed with one guy, took all of the gear off and put it right back on again. <laughs> um, I thought that was odd. Um, but generally, you just kind of sit there and you tell stupid stories and talk about you know stupid things that happened in your life or two nights ago or you know making plans for what you're going to do next week with your schedule or where you, but for the most part guys are there I mean it's only a what, 12 minute intermission now 15 mm-hmm. minutes so by the time you go in and towel off and do whatever you do there's and then you get your five minute Zamboni warning you're ready to go back out so there's really not a whole lot to do but and then as the season gets later and you know longer it's it's more focused and it's more important and it's you know you have to stay in that mode for the entire time that you, now for me, an hour before the rink, the radio went off and it would start focus. And, you know, so by the time you're done, it could be four and a half, five hours of just making sure that you understand what it is you have to do or what you want to do. Sorry, Mike, just a real quick follow-up, but Hutch, how much back and forth is there when there's two referees on that team to say, you know, that tripping penalty just after the midway point, did you think I should have called that or like that elbow? Do you think that was an elbow? I would never ask that. I don't, no. I, don't I mean, they, they would come and say, what did you see? Or I would say, did you see all of that? I mean, there's, there's different ways that you can get your partner to understand maybe, because don't forget, if you're going to do that, you've probably got one or two players kicking around that want to know, you know, what you're talking about. So I would go over and say, Hey, did you see all of that? And they now all of a sudden they've got some doubt and oh, maybe I didn't see all of that. Maybe this is now a conversation. Um, I was in Peterborough one night with a referee and uh, 
I was backing into the zone, player toe picks, goes down, the, the back guy calls the trip. And uh, okay, I mean, he's, he's 100 feet away, but he had a better view than I did. And he's a friend of mine. So, uh, you know, we worked a lot together. And so that was okay. And then later in the first period, same thing, I'm backing in and, you know, offensive player, the defenseman kind of gives him a, a shove to the chest. It wasn't a punch or it wasn't in his chin or he's kind of like a forearm shiver knocked him over. Well, the other 100 foot arm goes up again. And uh, okay, so we get in between the first period, first and second, Chris, to kind of wonder what you talk about. I started taking my gear off. Like I literally started taking my gear off. And he says, what are you doing? I said, well, you don't need me here. Like, obviously, from 100 feet, you've got all this covered. I'll just, you know, take my stuff off. I'll stick around and drive you home, or maybe I'll just go home and you can take a cab. And so I, I let it be known that I could, I was in a good position. I understand what the penalties are and what they look like. And if I need your help, I'll ask. But in those two, you were not correct and not right, so don't do it again. Um, so those are some of the conversations. But, you know, for the most part, guys, are they're all competent. They're all understanding what their job is and, you know, you might think you've got a really good view of it from 100 feet away, but if a guy's standing 12 or 15 from it, you better trust that he knows what he's looking at. How much more of that part of you came out as your years in the league went on? Like, I can't imagine game one, Scott Hutchinson, having quite the same approach as game 1001. Not in terms of what you're calling, but just that confidence to be with a partner on the ice. Listen, this is my end. This is how I'm calling it, et cetera. I mean, I, I I would say this to you. If you think I really missed it, then call it. I, I don't have a problem with that because at the end of the day, we're all here to get it right, and, and the teams deserve it, the fans deserve it, and the league deserves it. Um, but if you're not sure, you probably just best leave it for somebody that's got a better idea from a from the vantage point. It doesn't mean that I'm right, but from where I'm standing, I'm going to tell you that this is not a penalty. So um, I think – as you gain more confidence and more respect in the league, you, you can kind of lean on that experience to say, Hey, you know what? And then the other side of me is okay. Well, you would think that's a penalty call the penalty because I know when the supervisor the, comes in the room, he's going to know I didn't call it. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, but, but at the end of the day, we're all there to do the same job. Supervisors, you know, lineys, everybody's got the same, you know, same motivation and same intention just to get it right as best we can. And, it's, and, it, and some nights you just don't have it. Some nights you can't see anything. Some nights you don't know where you're supposed to be standing. It would take me 10 minutes to get used to Belleville. You know, it's like skating on the Bay of Quinty over there. And, you know, for the first 10 minutes, your sight lines are off. You can't get to your spots. You know, it's just, it's tough. But once you settle in and all of a sudden it becomes kind of second nature. But I look at uh, doing the radio broadcast and I, I did TV broadcast before that down at ice level. And I find the closer you get to the ice level, the faster those players move. Like I remember watching McDavid for the first time at ice level. And I was like, what, what, what was that that flew by? Is there a player that stands out to you that upon watching them, you were like, okay, this player can play. Um, there, I mean, there's a lot of them. Like I, it's funny. I, I watched, you know, some TV with my wife now and, you know, did you ref him? Yeah, I ref him, you know, um, some of the players that I really, really was fascinated by, um, um, Trevor Daly was an above average skater, even as a young player, he was outstanding. Um, I thought guys like Corey Perry, I remember Corey, if I'm not mistaken, Corey Perry's first year in the league, Rick Nash was on his team and I was skating around the London ice house and it looked like, um, 
a toothpick standing beside a six by six post. And I won't tell you which one Corey Perry was, but he was a terrific hockey player. Um, Mike Richards was a great player. Justin Azevedo and Kitchener, for those that remember, those, like players like that, they were so good. And they were all so good. Um, but fast, shoot, skate, pot, like when you're on the ice with them, Chris, you really don't have an appreciation just for how talented these players are. And then if you're sitting in the stands, which I never did, you got, you have to kind of snap yourself out of and go, he's 17. He's 18. You know, so all of those guys are, you know, Stephen Weiss and, you know, on and on and on. Just so many players that, that you know, were so good. I mean, the, the roster that they sent to the World Junior Tournament in 02 that I was fortunate enough to be a part of. I mean, talk about the who's who of junior hockey. Wow. Unbelievable talent. What's it mean to you as an official to get the nod to go and officiate that tournament? I thought I was getting pranked. To be honest with you, I thought, I thought I was getting pranked. <laughs> um, it was, uh, I got my, my level six in 99 with Scott Oakman. And uh, I remember I was, I was sitting at work and, you know, Ted Baker called and he says, Hey, just want to, and it was like in October or something. He goes, uh, just want to let you know that you've been selected to go to the world junior tournament. Now, come on, Ted, it's not funny. Come on. You know? So he says, no, you, you know, you're going to go to the world junior tournament. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Hockey Canada requires that you have your level six designation, which, which I had. So, you know, there were probably guys in the OHL that were better than I, but maybe didn't follow through to have it because the OHL at the time didn't require it. Um, but to be able to get that, get that tournament was to this day is still a highlight of my career. Um, I was in uh, the Czech Republic for 14 days over Christmas. And, you know, we were at the the main rink in part of Bice because Canada was over at Radikrolov and it was a brand new building. And it was, it was just an incredible, an incredible experience. So to be a part of that, you know, it was the highlight of my career. And incidentally, I got back from that tournament and the gentleman that they had asked to go to the world championships in April in uh, Sweden had a new job and wasn't able to go. So they asked if I could get time off and go and, you know, checked with work and checked with home and everybody was good with that. So I spent five weeks in Europe that year. And I, I don't know if that was done on purpose because it means that they didn't have to deal with me back home, but, but both of those, uh, both those terms were just outstanding. How different was it going from like a world junior to a world championship? Uh, while you're dealing with men uh, in the world, in the world senior championship, obviously, um, but just but everybody, it gets so different there. I mean, I was flying, I remember I was flying over. It's my first international assignment. We can't sleep. Seven hour flight. I don't even remember it. Um, but there was like 49 or 50 different rules interpretations from the Hockey Canada or the major junior book to the IHF book. And you had to dive into that and, you know, just make sure you were calling rules that you were familiar with, with, you know, without messing up too badly, but world junior tournament was, you know, smaller venues. Uh, I did, you know, in Sweden, we were in uh, Gutenberg or Jotaberg and I was there for two, two or three days. And I was up North in one of the venues for 10 days and back to Jotaberg for another 10 days. So I was there for like 22 days or 21 days, but I was fortunate enough to get uh, Finland, Russia in the main arena in Jotaberg. There was 24,000 people in the building just going crazy. And, you know, to be able to be a part of that was just, you know, something else too. I mean, have that many people and you've got Russia and their NHLers and, 
you know, the, the Finns and their NHLers. It was really just a great experience. And sitting down in the locker room at the end of the game and the door opens or the guy knocks on the door and said, so-and-so's here to see you. I don't know anybody from Sweden, let alone anywhere else in Europe. It was a guy that, uh, that my parents knew from, you know, 20 miles down the road. He was over there watching. He's knocking on the door. And so anyway, that was, uh, yeah, both fantastic events and uh, highlights of my career without question. Complete 180 here, but you spend enough time on the ice doing what you do, and you're bound to find yourself in the way. Never on purpose, of course, but either that puck's going to find you or those players you're going to get tangled up with. Uh, what's that What's that like? Do you feel it coming in like a freight train, or is it all just happening too quick? And, of course, how much does it really hurt? Oh, it hurts. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I literally, I mean, a lot of the guys, now you wear shin pads, some of the guys, more, more so linesmen, wear like the, the old Cooperall girdle. They, you know, the referees had them. They were very thin. Um, I never wore that. I just wore shin pads and, you know, protective equipment up and down. And, and that was it. Uh, just you do your best to stay out of the way. And, you know, at, at that level, the players have an idea of where you're supposed to be. Uh, so if you kind of just, you know, it sounds cliche, if you just stay in your lane and stay along the boards and don't venture too far away. I mean, it's, uh, I, I was fortunate. I never, I never really had an injury my whole time doing it. I got, you know, you get hit in the face with a stick here and there, but you know, get a puck every now and then. But if you learn how to turn away from it, it's like a, it's like a batter in baseball, right? If he gets that inside pitch and he turns properly, it's not going to hurt that much. But so I guess the best thing to best advice you could give a, a referee is don't try blocking shots to stay let, let the players take care of that. So Many referees who refed me tried to let me take care of stopping the puck, but I never did, which is why I didn't play much. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> at the start of every season, self-dig. So there, Chris Ferreira. See, I, I'll chirp anyone. Yeah, um, he still owes you. That's fair. How uh, to the start of the season, you mentioned Ted Baker. Is it him or David Branch that tells the refs to make sure the calls go for the London Knights? I, wow. it, was it one? Or... <laughs> wow. Um... Twice today, Popey. Wow, that's you gotta uh, have some fun on here. It's a fun topic. Come on. Yeah, it was. Um, yes, Branchy about actually, it. I, I I don't think it was Mr. Branch or Mr. Baker. I think it's just inherent in every referee that knows when you go into London, you're gonna take it or you're gonna give it. And, uh, I I enjoyed going in there. I mean, it was always a fun time, whether it be at the lighthouse or, pardon me, the 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 gardens or the Budweiser Center or whatever they're calling it now, the Ice House, um, was always a fun place to be and. Uh, I, uh, one of my, one of my fondest memories of, um, the ice house, if we go all the way back, I was eerie the year. I think they won the Memorial cup that year, but anyway, um, Brad boys is standing 15 feet from middle, middle ice at the net and he just rips it and it just in and out. I mean, I could tell it went in the net by the sound because that thin bar at the back makes a different sound than the crossbar. Ryan O'Neill at the time's lining for me, comes cruising in from the blind. He goes, did you hear that? Did you hear that? I said, yeah, I heard it. Did you see it go in the net? Um, no, he didn't see it. So I didn't see it go in the net. Uh, if I had a bet a dollar on it, I would have said that it was in. But if you don't see it, you can't. Well, by the time we have our conversation, they've already played it up top, you know, on the Rogers feet or whoever's carrying the game locally. And it's in the net, but I can't, I can't call it a goal. And, uh, you know, so I get down and uh, down in the hallway going. Now we're going into overtime because Erie uh, Erie scored, or so they thought. And Sherry Bass and just giving it to me in the hallway. And 
I said to him, Sherry, do you want me to lie to you? Do you want me to make something up and hope I'm right? I just did not see the puck go in the net and ice hockey 101 says you have to see it go in the net. So anyway, London won that game in overtime and, you know, <laughs> I got another earful on the way to the locker room at the end of that. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, the thing is always this, you can only call what you see. And if you don't see it, tell somebody and nine times out of 10, they'll believe that you're telling the truth and, and give you the benefit of the doubt because there isn't a referee on the planet that wants to go to the rink and mess it up on purpose. There isn't, you know, it just, it's not, it's not in your DNA. It's not how you were, you know, trained to do this. You want to do the very best job you can because there's a lot of people relying on you to do it. You've made it pretty clear, Hutch, how you kind of conducted yourself professionally. The conversations were always had, not looking for arguments. Everybody's just trying to do their best job. These are the interactions, of course, with the players, the coaches, the general managers, perhaps in Sherry's case, et cetera. Those that are really close to the game have a vested interest in it. We haven't talked about the fans. Do you even, do, is that just water off a referee's back? Yeah. I mean, for me, it is. Cause I mean, they, they, they have, I don't want to say they have every right to say what they want because some of it can be, you know, line crossing at times, but, you really, they're there to watch the product. They're there to watch what's going on. Um, and it's not very often. I mean, for us, you know, I was saying to you guys earlier, when you go to the game, you park in the parking lot, you're there so early anyway. You go in the back door, you do your thing, you go, you know, in, in some places you get an escort back to your car um, and you go home. And the only time you're going to hear about whether you did a good job or not is whether, you know, Mike Farwell and Chris Popert chewing your ass on the radio the next day or whatever it is, but I, the only incident that I ever had, we were, it's odd that it's Kitchener again, imagine that. Um, we were in London and I think, um, was it Boris Vlabic? Did he play, he played for Kitchener, right? Yep. And Jordan Foreman got tied up in behind the play and, you know, Boris wasn't having any of it. And, you know, Jordan Foreman was biting his ankle or whatever it was and punched him in the head or, poked them poked them poked them poked them poked them and finally i thought after four or five of those at this time of game those one minute penalties turned into something and i called a penalty and you know doesn't and it's a playoff game it doesn't kitchen or score well we're we're going off the ice in the new building and the gate that they have it's a swinging gate and it's got to be i don't know 12 feet wide and it's got to weigh seven eight hundred pounds so we're going off the ice and my linesman always went on the off first, just in case a situation like this happens. One of the guys in the stands pushed on that door and near knocked us back onto the ice. He hit it with such force that it nearly knocked us out coming off the ice. So that wasn't fun. And then ironically, about two weeks later, I'm at the market across from the, the, the it was a little bat center at the time. I don't want to give props to beer companies. Um, and I'm sitting there having a soup and some deep pregame. And this gentleman walks over to me. He says, are you Scott Hutchinson? And I'm thinking, who wants to know? And he says, I was the guy that pushed the door two weeks ago. And he says, I wanted to come over and apologize. And he bought my lunch for me. So um, that's, the, that's the only real time I've ever had any interaction with a fan. And, you know, I don't know that he, you know, realized what he had done at the time. But that door would have could have done a lot of damage. But, you know, so, you know, situation like that turns into good and he came over and apologized and I shook his hand. I appreciated it. Apologies from Pete DeBoer and a fan in London. I come on, you're living the life Hutch. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's charmed for sure. Charmed (laughs) for sure. You just need an apology from Farwell and you've hit the trifecta. No, not yet. Not yet. Uh, (laughs) Did you, did you see that Chris Tanev hit in the NHL a few weeks ago? No. 
Next no? question. Okay, and I won't ask about it. <laughs> no, I, uh, I don't. Chris, I, I can tell you this. If it's not the Leafs, I don't watch it. And I only watch the Leafs because I think Austin Matthews is an incredible talent. But if it was, you know, Montreal, Winnipeg, I wouldn't watch it. It's it's not the same. It's just not the same rush as holding onto a puck at center ice with 24,000 people yeah. waiting for you to screw up. It's just not. So, you know, I... I wouldn't see the highlights. I don't care to watch the packages. It's just not that part of my life is over for no other reason that I've seen it. I've done it. it, At some point it all becomes the same. I'm not really a fan of the game. If I'm not playing it, coaching or reffing it um, outside the Leafs and I'm not live or die with the Leafs. I just think Austin Matthews is a phenomenal talent. As are most of the others, as are some of the others, obviously. I'll change up the avenue of my questions. Farzi, I think knows where I'm going. I believe boarding is the stupidest penalty in the game of hockey. I, I feel like it's a, it's a penalty given to a player for being hit or hitting someone too hard into the boards. Am I right or wrong? So is the Tana penalty the one where he hit the guy seven feet from the boards, yeah. he slid in, and then he got a five-minute major? That's um, the one. I, I mean, I only saw the highlight pack. I didn't see the context of it. I didn't see where he came from. Was he holding popcorn from the concession stand? Did he have to come that far to hit him? He came he about he, that he, far. He came, yeah. yeah, he was on the other okay, side so, of the opening face-off circle. So, so the rule book says that you cannot tell I me mean, it's charging. If, not, if nothing else, it's charging because of the distance he traveled. And then the end result was him sliding across on nylon pants into nylon boards. Um, is the boarding – did he get a major? He got some games for that? I don't I think mean, he was suspended. He just got – You got a major five, for that? Yeah, yeah major. I mean, not being there, I would say this. What, what was the penalty when he hit the ice? You know, and I think that's the penalty to call. Um, but it also says if you've got your arm up and there's an injury, it's an automatic major. Whether that's in the NHL rule book, I don't know. So if there was a charging penalty coming and he ends up sliding into the boards and it becomes a boarding major, it's legit. But, I mean, imagine standing there a foot and a half from the boards with your head down and a puck on your stick and the guy comes and just smashes you into the boards you're going to accelerate into it. You know, if it's going to hurt, you're going to want it called. So that's boarding for, for those that don't know. Silly. <laughs> Silly. All right. While we're on the subject and, and I, I have to give credit to the genius on social media. I read this from, however, let's, I'll, I'll paint the picture for you here. I'm, I'm a speedy winger and I, I, I get past Popey cause he's a little slower on D. So he's got to reach back to try to get, try to catch up with me here. And as he does, he kind of almost lunges flat out sweeps his stick trips me but he touches the puck first so his stick touches the puck i go over the stick i'm tripped up is he getting a penalty for tripping or because he got the puck first is it no penalty 50 years ago probably not but now it's a penalty it's a penalty and and i so i say this so i'm you're skating down you, you go pipe pope pope grabs the puck but he upends you just because he touched the puck doesn't mean you need to be upended so let's go down the road a little bit here. And now, Farwell, you've got the puck. And then, you know, Pope comes at you. Will you shoot the puck away? And then you punch him in the face. Is that a penalty? I think so. Yeah. So he might have deserved he, it, but it's probably he a penalty. probably did. But just, yeah. just be, I mean, it, it's the upending of the player that is the penalty, whether you touch the puck or not. Because, uh, you know, the skill of these players now, if you don't upend them, he probably goes and volleys that puck to himself and goes between his legs and shelves it. So, it is, it's a penalty, but that's the one where you touch the puck first, ref, and 10,000 people screaming at you. But 
you know, it's just because it's the way it was always looked at and viewed as though he touched the puck, it's not a penalty. Well, it is a penalty, but, you know, not very many fans that I ever run into read the rule book. I mean, there was, I somewhat argue I didn't read it ever, but, you know. I always liked referees because I was a goalie. So whenever I would end up with an odd save, I always made sure to, you know, pick up the puck, flip it on the glove, hand it to the linesman, talk to the referee as he came over, just because I knew I was very active on the penalty kill in front of my own net, helping out my defenseman, if you will. And I always wanted them to, you know, err on the side of caution for giving me one of those penalties because some of the things I did definitely hurt. So I just want to say to refs, thank you. <laughs> I, I I think, uh, I, I think Hutch, you touched on it a moment ago, but just before we let you go, because real life is, is life now. And you're, you're showing that there is life after officiating in the Ontario hockey league, but what is life like after officiating in the OHL and how much do you miss it? Um, the first little while there's a huge adjustment because the whole routine is gone. And, and, and for those that, have done it they'll know that all of a sudden now you are part of raising children you are a part of taking care of domestic duties as a referee it didn't matter you just you went to the rink and that's what you did and and hopefully that your partner you know kind of got into the relationship knowing that that was part of the deal um and then once you get out of it you've got that that you need to deal with and then you lose touch with the guys that you were always talking about or with meet you here meet you there good game, good job. That seemingly goes away. Um, you know, there's a few really close ones that you, you know, you stay in touch with, but for the most part, everything comes to an end. Well, everything does come to an end. And do I miss it? I miss being at the rink and that, you know, cerebral joust with, with a coach or, you know, wondering if you can get it right. Or, you know, would I call that again? Or, man, that was a great one-liner, and I'm glad I gave it, didn't take it. Um, but do I miss it? I don't miss the travel. I mean, it's it's just a really, really lonely road. And like you guys said at the top of the show here, you guys get a bus. You know, you got a cat, you got a bus seat that's going to – and I, I don't know about, you know, how it works for you guys, but you probably, if you haven't got the thing catered, you've got it packed. Um, so you're not worrying about food on the way home. You're not worrying about falling asleep at the wheel. You're not worrying about all of these things. I rode home from Plymouth one night, had to stop in London and get a hotel room because I knew I was not going to make it home, a playoff game after Plymouth, and then going to work in the same clothes I wore the day before. You know, it's just, it's tough. So do I miss it? Yeah, I miss parts of it. But, you know, it, it, it gave me a lot of, of what I learned Um to go to think I would ever want to go back. I mean, maybe if DeBoer's back in Kitchener, because that might be the only reason I go back there. But, you know, it's just now you, at some point you got to grow up and move on. And at, at my age, I don't know that I could get up and down the ice as, as nimbly as I did in the past. But it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. The one thing I will say is a lot of people do not truly understand the commitment that these guys go through every single night to get to the rink, to make the game go. I mean, you can have, you know, 40 guys on the ice with, you know, with no referees and they call it a practice, but if you don't have referees, what have you got, right? A practice. Um, so I don't miss, I don't miss the travel. I don't miss all of that. It would be nice to go back for one time and just, you know, try it on and see what it did, but you know, I don't think I miss it that much to try that even. 
Well, if you're ever at a Rangers game when fans are allowed back in the stadium, make sure to come up to the broadcast booth for an intermission, and we'll get you to put on those referee lenses again. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> and we'll make sure there's a Scott Hutchinson night at the uh, in London sometime soon. You can show up for that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the building would be empty. And I would have to dr- I would have to drive myself to Kitchener. I don't know that I want to do that again either. It just although there was a place just kind of around Kitchener on the way in, we'd go in the back place. And I don't remember the name of the town, but they had the best butter tarts. Honestly. Oh, just, geez. just north of the city, on the way in from the back side of the north, they had these butter tarts. And I had a buddy of mine with he bought a dozen of them. He he ate them all before we got to the rink. I didn't have any. That's a true story, but he ate a dozen of them before we got to the rink. He couldn't stop. It's got a maze, Parsi. Animes. There's a Floridale in Floridale, just outside of Elmira, maybe. Just but, a yeah. little, just a little yeah. town. And then there's so <laughs> we're driving, and there's this house on the top. It's on the north part of the road, and it's massive up on top of the hill. And I remember going in and asking Pete, you know, if he hired somebody to cut his grass because I would, I would put in for it because I thought maybe that was his place, but. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, I missed those. I, last story, I know you guys probably want to get on something a little more interesting. I remember pulling into, in the Kitchener parking lot one time. And, uh, I think, uh, Mr. DeBoer had gotten a new car. It was a gunmetal Patriot, a Jeep. I think he was a, an affinity for the Jeeps. And I remember going in and, and Spotter was on the end of the bench. And I said, so I grabbed him. I said, Steve, I said, you're not going to believe what happened in the parking lot. I said, I opened my door. And I thought I put it in park, but it was in reverse. So I've the vehicle beside me, I've got a seven foot scratch down the side of this new Jeep, this Jeep. So I panicked. I had a, I got out of the vehicle, I moved it. Well, here comes the boar. He can hear me because I'm speaking just loudly enough. He's coming down the bench wondering what has happened to his prized possession. And I just looked at him and we exchanged words, but it never really did happen. But it was fun to see him get upset at me before we even dropped the puck. Spotter was supposed to be the practical joker on that crew. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> That's he, a good uh, one. He, Spotter, Spotter uh, he's a wonderful man. I just, you know, love that man to death. I go a long way back with Spotter when he was coaching to Markham and come up through the ranks and all the things he did. And to this day, we're still in touch a little bit. But he uh, he had a really dry sense of humor. And he was a, he's the perfect combination in that Abbott and Costello routine they got going um both of them are just top shelf guys a lot of respect for both of them but uh spotter spotter had some good stuff he really did it works think, that's for sure yeah we'll put you up on that top shelf with them hutch this is uh this has been a lot of fun and we really appreciate you making the time thanks for doing it uh, my pleasure anytime fellas Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.